Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in European Studies. I'm Liz Spragans, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Amanda Scott about her new book, The Basque Sororas, Local Religion, Gender, and Power in Northern Iberia, 1550 to 1800. Amanda is Assistant Professor of History at Penn State University, and she is a social and cultural historian of early modern Iberia, with expertise in the Basque country, the Spanish Empire, and women's history, and with broader thematic interests in comparative reforms, monasticism, witchcraft, and inquisition, immigration, and ethnicity in the Spanish world in Latin America. She's published on these themes in the 16th century journal and church history, and has a chapter in a volume on devout laywomen in the early modern world that was edited by Alison Weber. Amanda Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so Amanda, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, where you went to school, how you became interested in early modern Iberian history. Sure. Uh, so I'm originally from California and I did my undergraduate at the College of William and Mary, where I started working with Luann Holmza. And that's how I got interested in working on Spanish history, though it was sort of a bit of a circuitous route that I started working on Latin American history. Um, Spanish literature, and then sort of started working with Luann. She took me to um, to do research my senior year of college in Pamplona, and then everything kind of just fell into place ever since after that. I then went on to do my PhD at Washington University in St. Louis, and I worked with uh, Daniel Bornstein, who does Italian uh, women's history, uh, specifically nuns, um, reform of women religious, and that was sort of a good thematic match. So it allowed me to kind of bring those interests in Spanish history together with like a strong focus in uh, women's religious history. Um, from there, I went on and I taught for two years at the U.S. Naval Academy. And then this last year, I moved to Penn State, uh, where I've been, and I'm very happy here. Um, so. Sorry, what, what else? Yeah, no, that's great. Um so when you were doing your undergraduate research in, in Pamplona, um, was that also on, on what your dissertation wound up being? What kind of stuff were you getting to work with then? So that was really fun. Uh, what happened was that I started taking classes with Luann, and she kind of picked aside a few uh, students who she thought might be interested to do advanced research in Pamplona, and she started working with us on paleography, um, reading uh, mostly trials that she'd copied from the, um, the AHN in Madrid. And then over spring break of my senior year, she took us to Pamplona, where we had a week in the archives, in the diocesan archive of um, Pamplona, as well as the, um, the Royal Archive of Navarre. And um, during that week, I was working specifically on clerical misbehavior, uh, the sort of many trials of this one priest named um, Don Pedro de Atondo, who had sort of gone into just a long career of violence with his neighbors, um, sort of family disputes, accusations over wandering away from his parish, um, ca uh, casting uh, magical spells, uh, sort of uh, selling uh, cures. And it sort of was just sort of the, um, the epitome of everything, a tridentine reform kind of wrapped up into one little parish. So I did a microhistory um, on that as a senior, and then that ended up becoming a master's project, which I also did under Luann's direction. And then that became the article that I had in 16th Century Journal. 
Uh, while I was working on Don Pedro's many trials um, in the archives in Pamplona, I started to occasionally come across references to sororas. And the dictionaries um, that the archives had always defined them just as um, nuns, which from the trials that I was reading became pretty clear that that was not the case at all, that they were something very specifically Basque. And so um, that sort of piqued my interest, but I was definitely still working on uh, clerical misbehavior. But I kind of put that aside and decided that, that was what I wanted to work on for my dissertation. And um, I was kind of in a good place because I had that idea of what I wanted to work on kind of the moment I started the PhD program. So I was able to start doing research immediately um, and kind of really starting to have the pieces fall into place from kind of the first year. And that's kind of one of the reasons that I think I had just so many um, weeks in the archives that for this project, I spent over 100 weeks in the archives um, so I was really able to spend a lot of time with the, the records. And I think that's just because I started working on that as an undergrad. That's incredible. It's such a massive amount of time in the archives. Um, and it's and it's cool that you got to have some of the orientation to those some of the same archives that you worked with as an undergraduate um, feature really prominently in your book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's frustrating that I I still I, I'm sh I know for a fact I have not actually read all of the records on the Soros. And I mean, that's just like to this point, it's like impossible. You're never going to find everything and you're always going to keep finding more things after you've already finished the project. Um, like I was just looking through one of the catalogs yesterday and I found another reference to actually an interesting trial involving a Sorora that um, I had just completely missed before. But it was it was useful because I was able to establish really good contacts with the archives and the project kind of grew over time that I started off thinking it was going to be a, a fairly specific story about how the Sororas acted as kind of watchdogs in the parish, sort of reporting back on um, kind of the misbehavior of their priests, conflict with um, their parishioners and sort of becoming sort of this um, this way for the diocese to understand what was going on in the ground. Uh, but as I continued to read that, it got a lot more complex. Um, it, got, it grew over the course of two centuries um, and it started to involve a lot more archives than just Pamplona. And that was partly due to the fact that I was able to spend so much time um, starting early, um, but also just sort of add uh, new archives and new collections over the course of those um, seven years of grad school. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so maybe as we transition into having you talk about the book, you could just start off by telling um, the audience what what is a Sorora? Why why do they matter? What what's really cool about them? Yeah, that's always the tricky part with this. I'm like, oh, Sorora. I was like, blah blah blah. Um, but yeah, nobody knows what a Sorora is. So sure. Uh, so the Sororas are essentially devout laywomen that are hired by the parish uh, and licensed sort of like the male clergy, um, examined sort of like the male clergy, but in a position that's very specific for women. Um, and they're only in uh, the Basque speaking land. So the Basque country is a little bit uh, blurry to kind of define it the way we do today as a political unit. Um, the way I treat it in the book is uh, sort of a cultural and linguistic area of northern Spain. Um, but in any case, there are a lot of sort of older Basque traditions, older Basque ways of doing things that carry over and get sort of redefined and called something um, that kind of makes more sense in the early modern period uh, to Spanish speakers or to kind of people that are kind of coming in between those two worlds. So the Sororas then um, in other places or without kind of more knowledge of what they do specifically in the Basque country would look a lot like uh, the tertiaries in Italy 
or the Beguines in the Low Countries, sometimes like the Beatas of Castile. Um, but the big difference between what they're doing in the Basque Country and what these other women are doing elsewhere in Europe is that the Sorores hold a set vocation that's paid. Um, they receive a stipend. They receive a place to live. Um, they sometimes pull their uh, their their pay from something similar to a benefice. So in those ways, they look a lot like the male clergy, um, though they're not doing um, they're not doing pastoral care like the clergy would be doing. Um, the other interesting thing about the Soros that puts them in a different light than those other kind of quasi-religious women um, is that they don't take any vows. So that is different from what nuns would be doing, which they would take um, three formal vows, sometimes supplemental vows, but um, sort of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, and the Soros only take informal promises to do those things, which means that if they don't like the job that they have, they can go back to the secular life and um, without sort of perjuring themselves as a nun would be doing and would be accused of apostasy and sort of subject to the diocesan courts. So what the Soros do then is that this job sort of gives them a place to um, to be neither fully a nun, but neither a married woman. So they don't marry, um, but it gives them a place where they they can be single and a respectable role in their communities, serving their communities, doing work for the community that is absolutely crucial for the kind of upkeep of religious sites. Um, and in return, they're given kind of this prestigious role in the community. Um, they're paid and uh, they can hold on to this through the, the, their entire life. They have um, the job security through, um, through death, actually. So it's a very special position for women that is unparalleled anywhere else in Europe. And um, I think it, what it does what I sort of argue in this book is that this sort of expands the way we think about women's place in early modern Spain, but also prioritizes some of these sort of regions that we don't necessarily think about when we're thinking about um, women's role in reformed Catholicism. Super, super. Um, so one really tiny question that I had. So we were talking about all of your work in the archives. We were talking about you were talking about how sororas are sort of this unique Basque phenomenon. What percentage of the archival sources that you were working with were in Basque versus Castilian, Aragonese, Navarrese? Oh, um, so all of them are in Castilian. Uh, occasionally, there is a phrase or word that's in Basque. Um, and depending on the archives, uh, definitely this is the case in Gipuzkoa. Um, the catalogs for the archives are in Basque. Uh, and that's a feature of um, kind of cultural groups volunteering to catalog the archives and they do it in Basque. But that's sort of anachronistic because the trial itself um, and the written records are in Castilian. The interesting feature about this is that that's a little bit misleading because um, increasingly as other work, not my own, but like um, other scholars are showing that uh, the Basque region, um, including Navarre and fairly south, far south in Navarre, as far as Tudela, uh, was probably monolingually Basque or at very best sort of bilingually Basque and Castilian. So all of these people uh, would have been speaking Basque. And due to the nature of early modern trial records in Spain, uh, for privacy, there would have to be a translator on the scene. So the deponents for these records would always be speaking in um, Basque, but the translator and the notary would then be translating uh, on the fly into Castilian. So um, conveniently for me, that means that all these records are in 
um, Castilian, which I read and speak fluently, um, I was able to pick up like enough working reading knowledge of kind of phrases and sort of topics that I would encounter uh, in Basque, but I don't speak Basque. And um, it's a very complicated language to learn, especially in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was I was wondering, so as you were describing that process, to what extent did you have to think about the accuracy of those records because of the kind of on-the-fly translation that was happening? Was that was that a thing that you grappled with in your methodology, or was that um, not a so, concern for a particular reason? Yeah, please. The closest places that I see some kind of confusion about terminology is trying to translate things from Basque into Castilian and not having um, exact words. So the, the, the word Sorora is the best example of that. And I think that's leading back to what I said about kind of how the dictionaries always defined it just as none, um, which is um, incorrect. Castilian um, inquisitors or um, court functionaries or anybody kind of producing these records who are not from the Basque country, and a lot of them were, but we're still trying to, we're still working in Castilian. Um, they didn't have a good word for Sorora. So oftentimes they would just say Sorora, which was helpful, but sometimes they would kind of draw upon other words, which actually was useful because that kind of gave me a better sense of what the Sororas were um, and sort of their uh, the linguistic roots for the term. So sometimes they would use um, other words, which are pretty clearly um Latinized Basque. So they would say Freira or Freila, um, Sorora rather than Sorora. They would use very variations of kind of bringing uh, words that sounded like wax in um, to kind of maybe relate to the the liturgical roles. Um, Or they would just be kind of Latinizing it, bringing the words, uh, the Latin words for sister in. Um, So that was able, that kind of keyed me into the fact that this is a, a different this is a different position that they're unfamiliar with and they're trying to define it. So I don't think it was actually an obstacle. It actually was kind of helpful to kind of clue me into the fact that, yes, the Sororas are something that is unique to the Basque country and therefore um, hard to define. That's that's super fascinating. Um, thank you for that. That really interesting answer. Um, so. Again, continuing with that, I'm super interested in your methodology. So as we've said, this project came from this massive and extensive um, engagement with sources from several different archives. Can you talk us through your, your methodologies for approaching these sources? Um, you know, when you were confronted with such an enormous quantity of, of material, you know, you have this great picture in your introduction of just the, like, stacks on stacks on stacks on stacks mm-hmm. of legajos in, yeah. in one of it's these like a archives. Yeah, field. Yeah, like, so, you know, I'm sure that you were just overwhelmed with this wealth of material that you had to sort of pick and choose from. How did you how did you make those choices? How did you decide on what to hone in on? I basically had to kind of have a different method for each archive. And like I said, I started off just working in the two in Pamplona, which fortunately had really good catalogs. Uh, the one in the, uh, the diocesan archive, the ADP. Uh, that one only had um, paper catalogs, but like in, in book form, uh, but they're constantly um, editing new ones. So there would be new ones coming out and they would have sort of um, inconsistent, but still very interesting indices. 
um, both uh, by name as well as uh, by place and sometimes by topic. Um, none of them included sororas in those, but the newer editions that are coming out are starting to include those just because they got familiar with me always asking about them. So that's kind of a, a nice kind of interesting feature about how the, um, the archival arrangement of uh, collections can change based on the way um, researchers are using them. Um, in the general archive of Navarre in the so the Royal Archive, which is housed in a um, actually an old castle and has um, seven floors, subterranean floors of just an immense amount of material that um, most of it is is not in the area that I needed. Um, but they have good notarial collections as well as criminal trials. That one I could use um, a, a web. Well, not a web. It was a sort of a local area network program that they had in the archives. Uh, to do keyword searches and by names. So what I was able to do, what I started doing was I started triangulating between people, um, between those two archives, uh, which was sort of a, a tool I started experimenting with when I was working on clerical misbehavior, trying to look for those priests in the secular archives where they should not have been. They should have their, their trial should have been handled in the diocesan archives. Um, but I started finding them occasionally in places that they should not have been. Um, suggesting that people were starting to draw upon different jurisdictions um, in ways that they figured would uh, benefit their cases. And that sometimes even priests were able to bring, in certain very specific cases, bring cases in the dios in the secular archives rather than the diocesan archives. And likewise, that they would show up in wills or in other places. So I was able to get kind of a fuller picture working between those two archives, trying to triangulate personnel. Um, once I started getting some grants, and I think this is the crucial part to doing a project like this, which I just like to like call out and say, like, it's really important. We have year long grants for grad students to do projects like this because you can't do a book like I wrote without being in the archives for a solid 13 months. Um, what I was able to start doing then was bringing in some of the other archives. So my project, because I was working across jurisdictions as well as across administrative um, regions. And some people's projects wouldn't have this be the problem if they were working in just one diocese in Italy, for instance. Um, but I was working in Navarre, which had the royal jurisdiction of Navarre, and then the Pamplona diocese, which covered part of Navarre, part of the French Basque country, um, part of Gipuzkoa, um, and then occasionally part of Tudela. Um, and then Another diocesan jurisdiction, Calahora, which covered another part of it, and then in Bilbao, and then up into the Basque Country, which was yet another um, diocesan jurisdiction. So across all of those, I had a whole set of other diocesan archives. Um, and then as I got out of Navarre, I had other sets of notarial archives as well as different criminal archives. And so basically, as I started adding more archives, I had to and kind of new methods of looking to do that similar triangulation which was not always possible because with archives that have their um, collections lost or destroyed, sometimes you just can't do that. But I did that whenever I could. Um, when I couldn't, which was more of the case in Bilbao because their, um, much of their diocesan collection was um, – their diocesan criminal collection is, is, um, is gone. Um, and then a lot of their, um, their notarial records are in a state you can't, you can't read. Um, that they're too, they're falling apart. What I had to start doing there was just looking for different things. So that's sort of the feature of some of my later chapters as they start to kind of focus in on more um, on certain areas where I was able to look at um, trials in a different way. 
But I guess basically the kind of wrap up of that question is that the methods changed depending on where I was and if I was able to do that triangulation, um, as well as if I was using criminal trials versus notarial records versus diocesan archives. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other archives I ended up going to that were just sort of um, for fun to see if like, oh, I have a, a few days, like I might as well go see if there's anything that's similar in, in Barcelona or Salamanca or Avila or um, Santiago de Compostela, just to see, um, to just, you know, make sure that the stores truly were only in the Basque Country, but then to kind of contextualize what was going on in other dioceses in Spain at the same time. And so that was a lot of fun that I was able to just um, kind of have so much time to go play around in archives. And that um, I think is also another reason why those really long-term grants are so crucial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as somebody that's done archival work in, in other places in Spain, just getting oriented takes so long, like getting familiar with the seven different volumes that, yeah. that they have the archive indexed in, or, you know, the 25 yeah. different volumes. Yeah. Try like 43 and growing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So that, that's, that's great. I have one last um, methodology question, and I hope that it's, I think it's relatively short. But so you, you say in your introduction that you begin your study after male clergy had solidified their control of Christian devotion. Um, and so you wind up with, a, as, as the title to the book states, you wind up with 1550 to 1800. Why, why this time frame? What's, what is so critical to you? I, I think I understand the end date, the 1800 date makes sense, since, as you say, sororas kind of get phased out, as it were. But why the start date? What's so interesting okay. about that start date? So that start date is not as exact. Like, I could have chosen probably a specific year, but it's, again, like, I think that would be a little bit almost um, too specific. So what that is, basically, for the Basque Country, and since kind of my primary archival base is Pamplona, since that had both the um, the the regional jurisdiction archives as well as the diocesan archives that covered the largest portion of the, um, the area, what that 1550 is a about when the diocese started keeping a good archive for the criminal trials that the diocese was overseeing as part of their, this is again, so this would be a little bit early for um, saying, oh, this is like a, a direct effect of the Council of Trent, but elsewhere in Europe, this would be a, a, an effect of the Council of Trent, that they should have um, better archives and better kind of record keeping at the diocesan level. Um, what happens in Spain is that um, at least this is my kind of take on this based on my experience in other archives is that there's no consistency on when people, when dioceses started doing this and also kind of what their program with archival record keeping would be. So um, for instance, I was in Valencia last summer and um, a lot of their records uh, were burned. So it's not a great comparison in terms of just the size of the collections but what they seem to do in the diocese, in the, um, the Tridentine period after after kind of Catholic reform really gets going, is that they seem to focus much more on the finances of the parish, the parishes and the diocese. And that was sort of their direction of reform of being like, we're going to just get our um, our money in order. Um, whereas Pamplona really focused more on criminal pastoral correction, that they were going to go after um, people that were not doing the right thing um, in a rather... Uh, in rather severe terms, and that the the courts for Pamplona expanded extensively. So when I say that 
this is about kind of the male clergy taking um, kind of hold on this. That is a kind of a, a shorthand for saying like what's going on there um, as this kind of plays out in more broad terms in the Basque country. What this is, is not a direct cause and effect, but it's sort of simultaneous with some of those older traditions of sort of more matricentrical um, women's household devotion kind of getting swept into a more focused um, wave of Catholic renewal in which the um, the male diocese is um, in charge. And sort of the strange feature of this is that while that's happening in the Basque country, the sororas are also kind of really um, becoming a more crucial element in helping implement reform in this sort of very male way in the diocese. Um, and they're given a very specific role in this process and their, their, their job is sort of protected because they prove themselves to be so useful in this. Um, so 1550 then is really just kind of the date that I can kind of start to track all of these different things, like good record keeping mainly um, and good larger collections across the archives, combined with the fact that we're starting to see a lot of those features of Catholic renewal and reformation. Awesome. Um, so then I have just one final sort of context question, and then we can move to, to chapter one. Um, so throughout your book, you highlight the tension of the local versus the global that so defined um, many parts of the early modern Iberian experience. Um, and I was hoping that you could maybe talk about this this paradox uh, in general and then explain to me or explain to the audience how it comes to bear on your book in particular. Um, you know, and so how, how do sororas, another way of putting it would be, how do sororas get situated within kind of the field of global Iberian studies? Right. So I think that this is a feature for early modern Europe in general, that this increasingly global presence, like globalizing a force of the world as being felt in Europe and by people. And so I think we have to think about um, the globalization of the early modern period as not just sort of these forces that are uh, just like that are separate from the, the local experience. Um, Carlo Ginsberg had a really good quote on this a few years ago, which was that there can be no global history without a deep knowledge of the local. And for anybody who's read any of Carlo Ginsberg's work, obviously that's sort of like, you know, he, he's selling his own point, which is that like microhistory matters. Um, I'm not doing a microhistory here uh, because, again, I'm working over 250 years um, across a lot of different areas and I'm not really following one person. I have a few case studies, but not sort of the deep history of one kind of otherwise unknown person. Um, what I do think is important, especially for early modern Spain and specifically for the Basque country, because, you know, we always think about early modern Spain as being sort of the, the test case for empire, that like what do sort of the early modern empires look like? Spain is the first empire where the sun never sets, even though England gets that terminology later. It was Spain first. Um, so to have an empire like that, you have it's full of people and it's full of things going back and forth. And so in the Basque country in particular, um, for a variety of different reasons, um, and this is much more the case in uh, the Basque country, like proper as we consider the Basque country today, um, but also to an extent in Navarre, um, a lot of immigration that uh, immigration in the Spanish kingdoms was not like not anybody could just immigrate in certain provinces where um, had 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 the ability to immigrate. So in the Basque country, um, there was a lot of immigration 
um, due to kind of some uh, class statuses, but also just because of some of the skill sets that, that were unique to the Basque Country in mining, uh, mining, deep sea fishing, um, iron work, a lot of things that skills that were kind of in demand for um, long range global travel. Uh, so what happens is that you have a lot of people that are moving around in and out of the Basque Country. You have a lot of men who are gone for long periods of time. Um, and you're able to kind of track this in a specific way in the Basque Country that I think it's harder to look at in other areas that don't have kind of that set, very specific identity um, that the Basque Country does. Uh, this is not something that's necessarily new also in the global period, uh, that this sort of long history of um, men being gone for long periods of time is the, as a feature just for, for a long time in the Basque Country with the, the, um, the men who are gone on uh, the fishing fleets and the whaling up into Newfoundland, um, and then also uh, uh, shepherding across the Pyrenees. So I really refrain from doing kind of these cause and effects of saying like the Sororas, you know, received so much power and kind of prestige because men were gone. Um, and I think that's too simplified and like that I really, really didn't want to make that argument. However, um, men were gone a lot and um, certain structures did evolve in ways that made sense to the community and the Sororas having women take these roles, having a lot of women who weren't going to get married in the first place. Um, but also having kind of a lot of wealth come back in interesting ways that needs to be kind of um, put into place in the, the local communities, um, gifts to churches, uh, uh, testamentary gifts from um, the New World. Uh, all of those things kind of come together in a way that I think we can see um, in, in the Basque Country that you might not be able to kind of track in all those different ways elsewhere in Spain. Awesome. Thank you for that. That's, um, that's so true. Um, and, and I think that remembering <clears throat> that it's, it's not just about, you know, the periphery versus the center, that it, that it is this sort of fluid relationship, um, particularly in, in somewhere like the Basque Country, where there are these, like, ethnic and nobility laws that are allowing for some people to travel, whereas other places in, in the Iberian Peninsula couldn't. Yeah. And I think it's also just sort of a feature of modern boundaries to like think about the Basque country, or even if we're going to get up into Asturias or Galicia, to think of those as peripheries. Um, those would not have been peripheral in the way we would define peripheries today, that the Basque country, um, well, the Basque Country had major ports of entry, um, major um, shipbuilding hubs in Bilbao, um, a major port of departure right outside San Sebastian. And then um, Navarre uh, occupied a major, some of the better routes of crossing the Pyrenees, uh, less high routes. Um, and so in terms of people, goods, um, information, books, money, uh, weapons, uh, witches, all sorts of things kind of going back and forth um, the the border, that the border is not a periphery. We think about a borderland as peripheral today, but that's actually very central in that sense if we're thinking about kind of the transfer of those important goods. Um, and then if we like think about, this is outside my own scope of my work, but um, uh, Alison Posca's work on women and um, sort of the Atlantic empires and in, in how that's felt in Galicia, again, like seems to be a very peripheral region as we would define it today, but it's absolutely central in looking at kind of the effects of men being gone um, for so long in the Atlantic empires um, and how that actually plays out in, um, in, 
in society. And so I see some of the very similar um, parallels with what I see with the Sororas um, happening through her work in Galicia. That's great. Um, So as we move on to the content of the individual chapters, um, I thought we could begin chapter one um, just with an outline of the difference between lay and monastic religious life and then go in for some of the kind of specific manifestations of lay female religious life in the late medieval and early modern period in Europe that you talk about in, in chapter one. Okay, um, so chapter one, uh, uh, some of that appeared um, as my as an article I had in church history, um, and then I ex- expanded it with um, some more uh, kind of specifics about um, some sort of case studies with the Soros and sort of how it breaks down. Um, so this kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier about how we would define Soros differently if we didn't know more about them, how they would just look on the surface like any sort of other um, devout laywoman. So uh, I kind of use those terms so comfortably that I forget, like, devout laywoman or quasi-religious woman. Um, that sounds like I know exactly what that means. But to somebody else, I think those are a little bit clunky. Um, so what they essentially just mean is that we often think about, uh, you know, women having two options in the Middle Ages, that they could be nuns or wives. Um, you know, that obviously ignores the fact that there was a lot of, you know, that elite women could be nuns or wives that a lot of other women just never married. They worked, they were prostitutes um, or that they uh, passed in all sorts of other parts of society. Um, But if we're talking about kind of in the specific terms of what women could or could not do um, with honor, I guess uh, we think about those two options, wives or nuns. Um, But in fact, a lot of women chose a third option, um, which is what we would call a tertiary sort of those devout lay women, which are going to be kind of, kind of kind of nuns that they are they live like nuns um, but they are not kind of bound by the same um, strictness of nuns and specifically they don't take those vows that I mentioned before so they often live in little communities sometimes they would um, test the waters and later become a nun and that's more of the case with um, sometimes the Beguines of the low countries um, or they would sort of like try that out and then maybe they would go get married later um, Italian tertiaries, these are often going to be attached to uh, mendicant orders like the Dominicans or, or Franciscans, um, or at least have sort of a, a member of one of those male orders kind of overseeing um, the women's group. They might live in small groups, um, lead a contemplative life or do some charity. But generally, they're going to be kind of um, poor. Uh, they're going to live a simple life. Um, the Beatas of Castile, very similar to those Italian tertiaries, um, similarly doing kind of charitable or sort of humble life, um, t- kind of managing to um, to support themselves. So without kind of the support of a, a large formal monastic community, but without sort of the, I guess, the the strictness, but I guess maybe also the stress of a of those formal vows that it's a much more fluid and flexible life. They get to stay closer to their families. Um, or if they can't afford the, the cost of entering a formal convent, it's also more um, more feasible. So the sororas then, like I said, kind of complicate this because they on the surface seem like, oh, they're just doing they, they're like tertiaries. They're not taking formal vows. So they must be tertiaries. But the big difference is that they are employed by the parish churches to do work for the parish um, in a way that we might would else in other circumstances call like a sacristan. Um, or some of the other kind of uh, varieties of um, parish employees, which today, um, if people are familiar with the Catholic Church, would be more 
common to see women in these roles, but in the past, women would not be in sort of a formalized position. Um, the other group that I compare them to in um, in chapter one is also the anchorites a little bit. Um, and that's a kind of just because I, I do love the anchorites. Um, and I think that they provide some good examples because we think about, um, you know, the the flexibility of the tertiaries or, or the the Beatas being in their communities. And then we think, oh, well, the anchorites, if they lock, they brick themselves into a wall, they're not part of the communities anymore. It's a severe extreme monasticism. Um, but in fact, bricking yourself into the wall of your church is the best way to stay part of your community, that everybody's going to see you just about every day. And uh, you could just imagine anchorites just being bricked into walls, just shouting at people um, like as they walked by, people coming to visit, like passing babies back and forth, cats, um, food. And so I think, though, the Sororas don't get bricked into walls. Um, I think that idea of being in a, another form of religious life that is so central to the community um, actually does look a lot like that other kind of aspect of anchoritism. And I just love the anchorites, too. So. I, I love that description of the anchorites. I feel like uh, since coronavirus hit, I've seen a lot of articles in like the conversation and stuff describing, you know, the 21st century experience of quarantine as being like being an anchorite. But it sounds like it's not. It sounds like on your on your vision of it, it's we're being a whole lot less social than anchorites would have gotten to be. I for my this last spring, I taught a course um, on uh, women in European history as an undergraduate course. Um, and, you know, midway through, as like things started to collapse, I gave them a, a, an assignment to do a meme um, to make a meme about something they better understood from the class now that quarantine and coronavirus had hit. Um, and I had some on anchorites um, insofar as like maybe that that tension between like you're locked in, but you like are still like wanting to like shout and connect with people. Um, but I think actually probably one of the better examples would be um, the uh, the stylites. But that's out of the scope of my book. But the, the old desert hermits, um, mm. if you're thinking about um, you're just sort of like you're disheveled quarantine creature. <laughs> you smell bad. And Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, that also sounds like an amazing project for, for undergraduates. That's great. Oh, they were so funny. Um, a bunch on Marjorie Kemp also, that uh -huh. somehow she struck them as really kind of speaking to them through their quarantine. I guess it's the shrieking and the, yeah. the misery. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, so as you kind of talk about in the book, um, and we can get into the, the specifics of your um, position on the Council of Trent a little bit later, but, but sort of the usual account of the Council of Trent is that it's this, you know, set of um, reforms that is like all about centralization and sort of top down um, control of the local by higher authorities, as we've talked about, you sort of don't, you, you're interested in back and forth and not in just sort of one way um, imposition of power. You know, what did the Council of Trent or what did Tridentine reformers find so problematic about all of these other sorts of laywomen that you describe? Like what what threat did they pose to the reforms that the Council of Trent wanted to impose? So I know this is probably going to jump ahead a little bit, but actually one of the things that I do argue in the book is that a lot of the, the programs that Trent had in mind um, don't fully come to fruition until the Bourbon reforms um, and for a completely different reason. 
But one of the things that Trent is trying to do is to sort of trim things down and make things work a little bit better in a way that's going to be, um, to put it cynically, less embarrassing for um, the Catholic Church when they're thinking about kind of what are the Protestants making fun of them for? Um, what are sort of things that are falling apart or who have gotten kind of maybe if you imagine this like a tree that has grown too many branches over time and to kind of trim it back to the trunk and kind of get to something um, a little bit more austere and more pure. Um, so what happens for in, for the most part where I come come at this and I don't deal with some of the bigger structural changes for Trent. Um, but there's a lot of changes in terms of trying to get the clergy to better respond to the needs of the parish. And that's where I think there's often kind of, we forget like, oh, it actually, yes, Trent is responding to what's going on in the local, in the local circumstances. And it's not going to work unless people are on board with it. So this kind of comes back to some of my earlier work um, and maybe a little bit more into chapter three. I don't know if we've skipped ahead to there, um, but uh, what it does kind of on a practical sense for the way most people are going to feel it is it spawns a lot of synods. So meetings at the diocesan level about how they're going to attack certain changes. And what happens then is you see these sort of eccentric and very specific lists of decrees that are tailored to um, to the localities, to the diocese. And for the Basque, uh, for the Diocese of Pamplona, um, this is published. You can look at it online. Um, it's really good. Uh, the whole uh, 1590 Synod. So they're a little bit late to get to this. They have a few false starts earlier. But finally, with the 1590 Synod, they, they address everything. Um, and much of what I find most interesting are um, what happens with clergy who are not acting like priests or that are getting too close to their community, specifically that, that they're acting too much like lay people and you can't tell them apart. And that is sort of the um, the hallmark of kind of late medieval uh, Catholicism is that like you have these very embedded priests who like are illiterate. Um, they basically just act like they're, they're parishioners because they're one of them. They're like a local boy. Um, and so what's interesting with Pamplona is that they actually like say, actually, we do want local. We want local local clergy. We don't want somebody coming from afar um, because we don't want them to wander away. If they're local and we just make sure they're better educated and better trained, they will stay put um, and they won't embarrass anybody and they moreover won't abandon their parish. And that's the big problem that they're dealing with is this this sort of absent clergy. And so that's kind of where the sororas come in is that I see that them kind of filling the gaps um, and being there for to help the clergy, but also being there when the clergy aren't there. And that's one of the reasons that the diocese sort of lets them alone. I guess coming full, fully back to Trent um, and your question about kind of how it addresses specifically um, women like this. Uh, Trent doesn't address women like this. They address, um, they address monastic orders, um, nuns. Um, they have some decrees on kind of reforming um, monastic orders. But there's a decree shortly after Trent um, that's sort of generally considered part of Trent, but it's separate. It's called Circa Pastoralis, and that deals specifically with devout laywomen saying, like, they need to get themselves into convents. We already dealt with this in, um, in the older decree by Boniface Pericoloso, like, get yourself cloistered. Um, don't get out of your convents. Like, we only want religious women who are in convents acting like nuns, and if you're not doing that, you no longer are going to be um, able to do this. So that essentially says no more uh, devout laywomen, uh, but then you see a lot of women that are like, oh, but actually, like, I am serving this purpose. And the sororas as a whole group uh, managed to kind of write out um, both Trent and Circa Pastoralis all the way through the 18th century because they're able to call themselves basically something different. 
and say that they're not they're not nuns, they're not devoutly women. They're they're really helpful. Um and so do you think I mean it, you said that you don't like to sort of say that um because you know the Basque lands were particularly unique that left a space open for Sereras that that maybe wasn't available to women in in other parts of the Iberian Peninsula. But what, like, what do you see as being particular about the Basque country that facilitated the emergence and then protection of this kind of per- peculiar institution that, that you don't see in, in other parts of, of the peninsula? Some of this has to do with stuff that's not going to come really, that's not going to become important really until the 18th century, which has to do with the ways laws are passed and sort of the old fueros in Navarre about how um, Navarre actually is an autonomous um, kind of governing unit. It's a kingdom separately from um, Castile. And so laws have to be ratified in different ways. So they can't just sort of change things without sort of the agreement of the three estates in Navarre. Um, But elsewhere, I would say that kind of the, you see kind of glimpses of this um, in other points. So in chapter five, I have, um, I talk about witches and witchcraft um, and I found a few references to Sororas uh, being accused of witchcraft, um, not as many as you'd think, um, but they do seem to be vulnerable to that, like a woman living by herself in a, a you know, a shrine on a hilltop, like clearly a witch. Um, but what happens is that sometimes when you have what I, what I see in those case in the case that I talk about in Chapter five is um, Castilian inquisitors coming in um, and having this sort of cult- clash of cultures that the deponents in Navarre, this, so the witch hunts are in, in Navarre, um, they're, they're calling, they're talking about their sororas and they're being like, oh, of course, like, you know what sororas are doing. Um, and they're clearly kind of like trying to key into that, that understanding of what culturally sororas do in Basque culture. And it's completely lost upon the Castilian inquisitors. And they're like, okay, yeah, sure. A soror, fine, we'll write that down. Um, but like, they don't see the full importance of what, um, what they're talking about. Great. Um, so then speaking of, of what, what they're doing, that's so important. Chapter two, you talk, um, about, (laughs) no, that's great. It's a perfect segue. Uh, you move from describing kind of the range of devout women, late, late women throughout late medieval and early modern Europe to focusing specifically on, on the sororas. Um, so, What's the relationship between the Sorora and her community? What does she do? Um, how does she become one? What are the sorts of things that govern her behavior day in the life of the Sorora? Yeah, so this is, I guess, like this interview is causing, is like running into the same problems I had when I was trying to organize my book, which is just like, how do I even start talking about this without describing what they are? But then, like, there's all these other things I want to talk about. So, yeah, it's difficult to say, like, well, it's also the problem of, like, dealing with, like, that there's no other book on the sororas. So I can't like, just like say like, Oh, as you know, as you already know, you already know what a sorora is. Um, okay. So, uh, basically like if you just have like the job description, it'll sound kind of boring. Like they did a lot of cleaning, um, they cleaned churches and they set the church up for the priest. Um, and that's sort of the basic, uh, the basic job descriptions. Um, but individually I see references to them doing a lot of other things. So I'm pretty sure they're um, like most Basque women in the, this period would be illiterate. However, 
um, they do seem to be have have some role of working with the um, the wardens, the church wardens, and keeping records. So they would at least kind of communicate what is in the church, um, what things have been coming get coming in and out, like as gifts. Um, so yeah, so they would be keeping track of of materials, um, cleaning, uh, obviously doing these things that um, that do fit into that kind of idea of like the domestic role. Um, so very kind of this is a very uh, part of like the gendered aspect of this. Um, but they're actually some of them I see doing some very interesting things. So um, an, a few references to Soros helping dress the priest, which would um, have been a fairly scandalous no-no after Trent um, and probably before Trent, too, for that matter. Um, lighting candles, um, doing some of the kind of some of those liturgical roles, um, a lot of funeral work. Um, and this is something I don't really talk about in the book because I know that they're doing this um, based on kind of other references, but I never actually find kind of documentation that lays out what they're doing as part of the funerals. But I'm pretty sure that they are actually washing bodies and helping um, with the families to grieve. Uh, they are um, educating young girls. Again, that's something that I see from kind of um, tangential other references, but I don't see necessarily in the, the, the records themselves. Um, Locking um, and unlocking the churches, uh, helping um, pilgrims, um, washing kind of travelers as they come through. Sort of generally like everything you'd expect of kind of a caretaker for a, a church. Um, and where I see the, the references to these, um, if that's also part of the question, is uh, in the job descriptions of when um, there's a transfer between one sewer to the next when she dies. So also, whereas, um, especially after those uh the synodal decrees saying kind of listing kind of the problems. One of the things that the synod does is says that like the sores need to take out a license and be examined. So that's, that kind of puts them in light with the male clergy. And what happens then is when a sora dies and the next one comes, she has to produce the license of the previous sora. Um, and then there'll be um, testimony from the parish about why it's so important to have somebody do that job. So um, you'll see kind of like both kind of what the ideal job description is, as well as kind of why people think it's important. And so then how did how did somebody become uh, a sorora? So you have the job description. You've talked about um, how these were, in fact, you know, official positions that the diocese recognized. How how does one become a sorora? Um, so after that synod. It does say that they're supposed to be 40 or older, which would put them outside of childbearing age and presumably outside like people being sexually interested in them, which is sort of probably just a fiction. Um, but I see a lot of stores that are a lot younger than that. Um, and then they like they'll come up with reasons about why that's OK. Like um, so kind of backing up, like somebody becomes a sorority because she wants to become a sorority. And then the community says she'd be a good sorority. Um, and that's where you see kind of some of them kind of bending the roles. Well, they'll say like, well, you know, she's been talking about this ever since she was a child, which, again, sounds like a fiction. Um, sometimes they live with a sorora and they kind of help the older sorora and then they sort of take over after that. Um, but some of them do seem to generally like genuinely have that vocation like a like like none. Sometimes they say, like, I've always just wanted to be a nun. I saw this as a life that I wanted to pursue. Um, so you definitely see sororas testifying that like they always knew that they wanted to do this. They wanted they you know, they were familiar with what the sororas did and it's inspiring to them um, when they want to become it. They have to wait for a position to open. Um, it's generally because like 
too many in one place, they become like impoverished and there's not enough work for them is the fear. Um, and then they, when the position opens, then they can become, um, they can take out the, the title. Um, they'll have to have nominations, um, and the town will vote on them and then they'll be installed. Um, and then they're kind of, they'll present the, um, the, the application to the bishop and then there'll be sort of some, um, questions and some examination. And, um, what's interesting, uh, kind of coming back to what I was saying before about like the younger ones that come in, um, they'll come up with some uh, very crazy reasons about why, like, it's okay. Like, you, you know, it's not going to be dangerous to have this 18 year old, like taking care of this like rural shrine. And they'll be like, um, you know, oh, I'm so ugly to look upon. Like nobody would find any sort of emotion other than just complete mortifi- mortification to like, look at me or, um, though I am young of body, I am old of soul. Uh, that's another popular one. But um, a lot of younger women will do it, too. And I think that just uh, speaks to the fact that this is a good job. It pays. It gives them a house. They know what they're doing for the rest of their life. They can live with other women, um, but they don't have to remove themselves to the community. And they get a um, they get on like kind of an honorable, prestigious role that is um, respected and protected. Um, so, yeah. So how did the financing of that work? Like where did where did the money come from to pay for this good job? So I see most references to that um, actually coming in from the 18th century when they're starting to uh, repeal or kind of close some of the shrines and they'll kind of pull up older records about how these things are paid for. Um, Generally, they will be on a system that's similar to a benefice and they might actually be pulling a portion of a benefice. So um, this is still the age of split benefices, which is a whole other problem that multiple um, clergy could be sharing one benefice and basically be impoverished because of that. Um, but sometimes benefices, um, especially in the 16th and 17th century in Spain, are so complicated before they get reworked um, in the Bourbon reforms that they're going to have a lot of kind of like caveats and like extra little things. And so the sororers often will have some money that's tied specifically for their upkeep coming out of the, the benefice. Um, other times that they will just have to be paid directly from the priest and that'll be kind of a requirement of the priest um, taking the benefits is that he has to employ a soror and a sacristan and a servant for the soror or something like that. Um, other ones just kind of collect money kind of haphazardly, like they po- draw a portion from the benefit structure like that, but a lot of their money will come from alms, which uh, makes them sound like they're paupers. But I think that those are actually probably considerable alms that are sort of expected. They're not sort of begging for them. They're just like, yes, you tithe the soror and you give the her um, money. Others are going to have um, kind of lands attached to their shrines and churches. So similar to the, the benefit structure, but like they're not like um, major producing lands. It's going to be like a garden and like a portion of an orchard. Um, and others, uh, almost all of them actually will uh receive gifts upon the death of anybody. So um, part of the law in Navarre in the Basque country is that when somebody dies, there's so many pieces of bread and so much money that has to be given to the church. Um, so you talk in the, in the beginning of that chapter about the importance of this symbiotic relationship between the Sorora and her community. So they're valuable jobs they pay women, uh, you know, effectively a living wage. They are paying them enough that these are desirable positions. What does the community get out of the presence of these women in in their presence? Well, um, for for women in particular, they have kind of a closer confidant, um, sort of a maybe somebody that they feel more comfortable kind of coming to. Um, uh, so that's sort of like kind of. Generally, I could say that that's 
a draw. Um, very practically, they have somebody who's like looking after the church, um, especially if the priest is going to be gone. They have sort of a familiar face who's keeping track of everything, and they can be sure that their hard um, labor in kind of donating to the church, building things, like decorating it, is going to be taken care of. And they know that um, it's being watched and it's not going to be robbed, um, theoretically. Um, but also, it's it's sort of a, a face of what their labors of donating to the church accomplishes. So rather than just sort of like slathering the decoration, they know that kind of what they're doing is that they're supporting um, this member of the community. Great. Um, So chapter three, um, to kind of circle back to the earlier Council of Trent conversation that we started, um, how does the Sorora story inform your vision of the Council of Trent? or the effects of, of tridentine reforms? Like, what, what does this bring new to the sort of traditional story that's gotten told about the Council of Trent? So again, I come at this mostly from the, the synods, which I see as part of the Council of Trent, because this is kind of Council of Trent at the diocesan level happens through synods. And for um, dioceses that don't have synods, basically there's no, there's no Council of Trent happening. Like, there's no tridentine reform unless they're getting together discussing how it's going to happen. Um, Navarre is very enthusiastic at the Council of Trent, and this is not my own work. This is um, older work by Jose Goni Gatstambide, sort of the big historian of Navarre. Um, that Navarre is well represented at Trent. Um, they come back and they're enthusiastic about having those synods, even if they don't get going right away. I think what I see as sort of the main contribution to of my work to understanding Trent is the kind of recognition um, through the lens of the Soros that unless there's some compromises that are made, um, both in terms of leniency as well as in terms of things that the, the localities want that are actually farther than Trent is willing to go, um, unless that there's compromises on those things that Trent is not going to, the Trent-Entered reform is not going to take hold in the diocese. So it's not like, I don't see this as a fully top-down process. I see this as kind of like, here's the things we'd like to do. And then the locality saying, okay, but you know what? We actually really do consider um, the, that a pastoral residency is mandated by God. And Trent is like, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a recommended, um, but Navarre, the Synod goes farther on that. Um, and I think that's a recognition of the fact that they really do need their priests there. Um, and then similarly with the Sororas, the fact that they're able to find a way to, um, to keep them and to actually kind of legitimize them through kind of redefinition of what they are. And by that licensing and titling and examination process, uh, that the fact that they are willing to be lenient on that aspect allows them to be successful on others. And so you talk about how that kind of licensing process and the diocesan kind of legitimate legitimizing of Sarar's position in their society um, leads to bishops and other church officials kind of cultivating sororas as their informants on the ground. Is that, would you say that that's an accurate characterization? Yeah. I mean, I don't see certainly the bishop ever writing to the sororas being like, tell me all you know. Um, and the visitations for this period are haphazard at best and possibly not happening very often, which is a, another kind of failure of trend is that there should be like yearly visitations, but um, it's unclear Sometimes there seem to be surprise visitations, which seem to be kind of again like counter to the point of a visitation. Um, 
But mainly what I see is this sort of redefinition of the Sora as not a devout laywoman, but as a diocesan employee. And that means that she is sort of exempt from those um, decrees saying that the uh, that there can't be uncloistered religious women. Um, and as a diocese employee who's getting that title and that um, examination and the, the stipend, uh, she's serving a particular purpose and the diocese is able to say that, well, we, we don't have to reform her because we, we just employed her and she's just, she's this employee and it's working really well. Great. Um, okay. So then, as we kind of talked about before we started recording, it sounds like you're going to get to talk about a lot of um, the second half of your book on another channel of the New Books Network. So I'm not going to have you go into nearly as much detail for chapters four through six. Um, But I was hoping that um, you could maybe dig into one story from from one of these chapters. Uh, You had mentioned earlier that you were really interested in witchcraft trials. And I thought maybe you could tell us one of your stories from your case studies in chapter five, um, The Witch of Nuestra Señora de Santa Cruz. Sure. Uh, so chapter five is a triptych chapter that has three case studies and they don't go in chronological order, um, but they kind of set up chapter six in terms of looking at sort of um, gendered aspects of the sororia, less so from the sense that I said before that like it is by definition a very gendered job in terms that they're doing um, domestic work that would be appropriate for women. Um, but I look at in these chapters kind of some of the breakdown of how uh, sort of suspicion of what might be going on in the sororia, sororia um, how that leads to accusation and sometimes how um, how sororas fight back against that or how sometimes the community is like, no, of course, that's not happening. We, we know exactly what's happening in the sororia and it's fine. Um, so what I do in Chapter 5 then is I look at kind of three of the most common kinds of um, suspicions, which again, with the caveat that like there aren't too many cases of sorors being accused of witches, but the ones that are are really, um, I think, illustrative. Uh, There is kind of the main one that I talk about in the chapter, which happens during the big witch hunts of the early 17th century. There's a number of other ones which I don't talk about in the book that are from the 1570s in this earlier case. It's kind of earlier um, mini spat of witchcraft uh, accusations. Um, and then also in Chapter 5, I look at uh, sort of the accusation that sororas are just running party houses, um, kind of common, like, accusation against nuns in general that, like, you know, they're just a bunch of lazy women who are, like, hanging out all day. Um, and then the other one is that they're, have, that, like, they're using sort of the secrecy of the sororia to have lovers, um, which I think is probably actually a, a fairly legitimate um, claim and probably one that's, like, generally, like, when it happens is accepted by the community. And I talk a lot more about that in um, chapter um, chapter six that, again, like I don't think like all sorors have lovers, but I think like the case in older medieval Europe that a lot of times it's sort of expected and sort of looked aside, looked the other way when a priest has a mistress. The same thing happens with the sorors. So um, back to the witchcraft case, then uh, that one um I mentioned a little bit earlier, what's interesting about that one is just sort of the disjuncture between local informants um, and uh, the the Spanish Inquisition in this case. Uh, so non-Basque, um, non-Navarese um, inquisitors. And so what happens in this case is that um, this woman named Maria de Andada 
says um, she wants to confess to witchcraft. Uh, she's dealt with in sort a little bit. Well, actually, she's dealt with in um, the kind of the famous witchcraft, witch hunting book, um, The Witch's Advocate, um, and as well as is the Sora that I talk about here, Catalina de Sopalde. Um, and what happens is Maria de Andada says she wants to confess and goes through kind of the very classic confession of what happens at a witch's Sabbath. And the Basque witch's Sabbaths are um, are crazy in their own way uh, that they um, they're very classically uh, the topsy turvy world where everything is backwards. Um, uh, but the really interesting feature of the Basque witch um, Sabbaths is that the witches are very closely tied to toads. And um, they have like toad pets and some of the witches have like toad um, little toad herds of toads and the junior witches uh, look after those toads. And like it's all about toads. They feed children toads. It's toads are falling out of pockets. Um, anyway, so she goes through her witchcraft confession, um, kind of the magic number three on the third time she says she will become a witch. But the key to this is that. She doesn't do this voluntarily. She is brought to the Witch of Sabbath by a Sorora and that the Sorora is able to uniquely use her position with access to women in the parish, um, access to kind of secret spots in the parish, access to the shrine that she's able to kind of have this midnight vigil and bring women to the church. So you just heard role as being sort of this trusted confidant of the community, um, somebody that is supposed to be the ideal kind of Basque woman. Um, and she's able to use this and turn it into become the ideal Basque witch. And she's able to use her her trust to lure people to the witch's Sabbath. And so that seems to be kind of the the angle that um, Maria wants to take with this accusation that her the you know, it's she turned into a witch. But really, the bigger problem is that the Sorora is the witch. Um, by this point, Catalina is actually um, dead and in jail, uh, in jail and then dead. But I don't think Maria knows about this or Else it's just that um, she's able to use kind of the accusation of somebody who's already dead. But the main point is that she's able to what she's trying to do is say that the Sorora is the witch um, and the bigger problem is not me, little Maria. It's the fact that you've got a Sorora who has access to the parish and she's loose and she's a witch and she's recruiting new witches and she's the devil's favorite witch and she's the perfect witch. Um so what happens then, and this is coming back to this sort of disjuncture between local knowledge and kind of uh, elite expectations of what women are doing, is that the Inquisition really does not seem to pay too much attention to this. That um, they say, okay, yes, the Sorora, sure, she went to the shrine, blah, 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 like we'll deal with her later. Um, but they don't kind of take seriously the the level of threat that Maria is trying to communicate there. Um, and so it's, you know, I don't. The, the case study is not really, I don't have something really conclusive. Maria does get um, get off and she goes back to the community. But the interesting thing to read there is the fact that like most Sororas were not accused of witchcraft. Um, most people did not turn them in as witchcraft, as witches. But when they did, they seemed to have done it for very specific reasons that made sense in a Basque context, but which was missed by the Inquisition. I mean, it's really fascinating because I, you know, one of the, the things that people talk about with early modern witchcraft trials is as a way of controlling women that get too powerful. And, and so you would think that with this population of women that does have um, power and control over, over more space than your typical early modern woman might, and that has more mobility and that has financial independence, you might, you might expect that 
those sorts of accusations would be more common. Um, what is exactly. your sense of why that why that doesn't happen? Is it just that they're so well situated in the communities? Is it? Well, I think that they do have a lot of support by the communities. They have a lot of enemies sometimes, especially if there's a contested nomination and somebody else wanted it. Um, but what I kind of start to argue um, more in the later chapters is that they're like there's a tension between turning over that local autonomy, the local control over the Sora and giving too much power to the diocese or to the courts of what's going on locally. And so saying that anything is going on wrong with the Sororas automatically kind of opens up that door for like the bishop to come in and be like, Oh really? Do you need more help here? Like I'm happy to like change things for you. And the parishes of course want to kind of maintain that local autonomy. And so kind of accusing the Sororas, even though they seem to, this is the, the interesting thing with the witchcraft trial, they seem to know that that should be something that the inquisition would be interested in. And like you say that, that they should be the kind of women that, um, are kind of the stereotypical witch and like take the power away. Um, they seem to restrain themselves, even though they're aware that that's a, an option. Um, and Maria kind of resorts to that when it's crucial, like her own life is at stake, um, but does not, it, it kind of falls flat. And I think that's largely because the, the Sororas, what they, what they do is not understood outside the Basque and Navarrese context. Um. So I don't want to I don't want to take away too much from the other New Books Network podcast, oh. but yeah, no, but I would I would just love um since we're also getting getting on the long side, I would just love to have you kind of summarize what you think some of the the big takeaway points from from your whole project are. Like what why should readers want to go check out this awesome book? Um well, I think there's probably something for everyone. Um, on the one hand, I do think it's interesting to look. There's not a whole lot of work on the Basque country in English. Um, and I think it is just a fascinating region uh, to to study. And one of the things that's really special about it is just the wealth of the archives. So one thing I do try to do in the book is be very upfront about my methods um, and about kind of my writing and research style. Um, and just sort of the wealth that these archives, kind of the projects that are allowed. So I think for um, for grad students who are interested in sort of thinking about uh, archival work in a perhaps in a, a post pandemic world, um, this kind of can be a model of uh, what do you do with that much material and kind of like how do you even start to do it? And one of the things I, I didn't mention earlier when I was talking about my methods is um, another f- feature here is that the archives are open for so limited hours um, that I did a lot of writing in the afternoons. So what meant that meant is that I worked on the chapters across the whole book um, simultaneously in kind of groups and wrote them in um, in pairs or trios as sort of a part of the organization of what I was doing in the archives in the mornings. So I hope some of that comes out and that could be helpful to students trying to think about how to organize a lot of material. Um, from a kind of just purely historical sense, like you're, you know, you're not interested in archives, that's fine. Um, something's wrong with you. But um, if you're interested in uh, just sort of looking at kind of the way that we might con- connect um, periods of reform over time, that we often look at tri- the Tridentine period as separate from the Bourbon period. And like, there's not a whole lot of reason to look at them together because one is one are royal reforms and one are church reforms. Um, 
I think we can kind of see how some of those things that get started with Trent get kind of beat full fruition by the bourbon reforms with the reorganization of the benefices and parishes. And that if we're not looking at history over time, like those, um, I'm not doing a long durée history here, but kind of looking at things that, you know, you wouldn't notice that full fruition if you were just looking at a hundred years. Um, and again, that's a matter of that. I was lucky with these archives, but, um, but kind of looking at how, these sort of temporal periods that are convenient for us might be um, kind of hiding uh, some other answers. Um, and then for people that are just interested in um, in women's uh, roles in local communities, as well as in shaping reform and policy, uh, I think the sororities with their just the wealth of their records give just a completely different view on the um, the the opportunities and limitations that women faced during this period. And we often think about Catholic reform as being very limiting for women, taking away that, um, that option of uh, devout life, devout lifestyle outside the convent. Um, but the sorors show just that there's actually a lot more flexibility that we might otherwise um, ignore. Awesome. Um, so I've taken up, Loads of your time. I super appreciate it. Um, before Sorry. I let you know, no, 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 it was wonderful. You had some amazing, fascinating answers. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're working on now. Like what's, oh. what's book two? Sure. Um, I'm still working on the sorors a little bit. I'm working on an article on um, St. Ignatius's sister, who was a sorora. So this is going to pull earlier than my book, um, but he had a half sister who was a sorora, so I'm looking at a little bit on the um, the influence of um, Basque women in the role of sororas and how that might have affected uh, the Jesuits' early receptivity to women's spirituality. Um, and also, I think nobody really remembers that Ignatius's sister was a sorora, so that's interesting. Um, that's going to be an article. My next book project is called Pilgrim, Pastor, Popper, Spy: The Case of Pierre the Proxelier, and it follows um, an amnesiac pilgrim priest coming down from France um, on the Camino de Santiago during the wars of religion, who was arrested um, near the border in Spain and um, examined to be, to see if he is uh, a fake priest or uh, and perhaps a spy. And so what I do in this, um, what I'm doing in this book is looking at kind of that trial from four different lenses. So pilgrim, pastor, pauper, spy, and considering uh, how evidence looks different depending on the kinds of questions we ask. What's really interesting about this trial, um, aside from kind of just being able to do that, is it um, it just reads like a movie, like a memento that the guy has amnesia. So he carries a bunch of notes with himself and his handwriting. Um, his handwriting helps him remember. He has a lot of travel passes, which the community finds absolutely suspicious that he must be something must be like suspicious here if he has that many travel passes, obviously. Um, but he can't kind of remember where he's been or where he's going. So they embark on a lot of forensic processes to try to determine um, who he is and what's going on, including doing a blind criminal lineup, which is something that's just like unknown for this period, um, retracing his um, his routes, his travel routes. And eventually they send him on his way, give him another note, and probably the exact same thing happens in the next town over. So. It's sort of this um, it's changing gears a lot, but it's uh, obviously really fun to work on espionage and um, it's like a like a movie. So, yeah, that sounds that sounds so fun. Uh, I can't wait to see how it develops further. Um, so thank you so Hopefully. much for taking. Yeah. <laughs> thank
thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed getting to talk to you about your book. Um, take care. <laughs>